You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Pastor Rick and Annette are traveling during the season, and so it is a privilege for me to be able to open up and gather around God's Word with you this morning. Now, before we get too far, I've decided that it's important that I'm going to break all of the preaching rules and let you know what I'm going to do ahead of time. In preaching, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to, uh, I'm supposed to let you have a little bit of a surprise to let you to discover how a sermon was built rather than tell you how it is going to be built. And many preachers would argue that a sermon is actually a piece of art and the joy of the discovery for you is to examine that art. But it's going to be ruined when I tell you what's going to happen and I'm going to risk that today. So, just so that you know... Sermon is going to be cased between two songs. I'm going to take Andy Williams, the most wonderful time of the year, and then in just a few moments, the Hallelujah Chorus, and we're going to put the sermon in between those two things. Today is December the 29th, and it is the last Sunday of the year, and as you know, if you've attended BFC for very long, you know that on the last Sunday of every year, we invite those who have ever sung in a choir have ever sung the hallelujah chorus to come up here on this stage at the end of the service into this choir loft to sing. So, those of you who have done this before, we need you to be prepared. If you've ever sung the hallelujah chorus before in a choir, we need you. Do you understand that? We need you. We need you to sing. If you have ever sung, please, we need you, okay? I hope that you have been warming up your voices and been getting ready for this fantastic time of singing. So we'll begin with the sermon. Uh, We'll begin the sermon with this wonderful and charming little piece by Andy Williams. And then we'll be ending the service with the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. I hope you're not confused by these instructions. Now, I'm going to motion sometime during the sermon to Pastor Kyle. He knows when that is. And he will begin to move. And you will see him move. And then you'll see other people begin to move that are singing. They'll be coming up to the choir loft. That is your cue. At that moment, you get up out of your seats and you come on up, okay? Are we tracking? Everybody clear about what's going to happen today? Very good. Now, in the sermon... I'm going to read the text, I'm going to make some comments, I'm not going to have enough time, but you're going to think I've talked too long, and then I'm going to tell you some bad news, some good news, and then we are going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus together. But by that time, you'll already have been moving, you already know what to do. Now, if all goes as planned, how Pastor Rick deals with this deal, I just do not know. No wonder he's always fiddling with it on Sundays. Now, if all goes as planned, you won't just be moving from your seats. You will be moving in your hearts. You'll be moving in your minds, and you'll be moving in your bodies. So may that happen for us today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to be reading chapter 2, verses 13 through verse 23. And I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 
This is the gospel according to Matthew. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and, furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, accordance with the t- in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, in case you are not aware, today is the first Sunday of the Christmas season. Most of us see that the Christmas season started the day after Thanksgiving, and our month is crammed with parties and shopping and decorating all the way up till December the 25th. But on the 25th, what happens is we can finally relax. We can finally let down. We can make the kids leave. We can take back the junk that we didn't really want. We can pray that the store offers us cash instead of just credit. And, uh, and then we start the new year with a credit card hangover. Uh, for the Christian church, though, the Christmas season actually starts on December the 25th. And it goes for 12 days until the beginning of the season called Epiphany. The season of Christmas, it's not just a day, but it's a season, a whole season, where we recognize the birth of our Lord, Jesus, who is the Messiah, God who is in flesh, Emmanuel, which means that God is with us. He is the one for whom we have been waiting. But for most, this season is just just a a reoccurring period that's generally considered to run from late November until early January. And while it does incorporate themes like peace and joy and charity and family, really, really it's a period of shopping to boost and to hold up. It's a period essential for for national economics. But even in secular circles, it's... It's a time of mystery, and it's a time of wonder. It's a time of magic and serendipity and nostalgia. And we're warmed by the voices of Nat King Cole as he roasts chestnuts over the open fire, Dean Martin, who has no place to go, and the savory voice of Frank Sinatra, who wishes that we would all have a very merry little Christmas. Nothing 
says Christmas, like hearing from the Rat Pack. Just a wonderful time. But I believe that this song, here's the first song, sung by Andy Williams is the one that captures the heart of American Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. It's the beginning. It's the thing that we live for. This song is used everywhere, and it's worked its way really into the American psyche. On sitcoms and in shopping malls, this is the song that you hear. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. We believe this, or at least we hope for this. And we stand in long, long lines at the malls in order to capture these kinds of moments with our kids. This is a picture of of a guy that I follow on Instagram. (laughs) This is what we would hope for during Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap-happiest season of all, can't you tell? There'll be parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow and there'll be scary ghost stories, whatever that means, and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. These are the elements that we expect for our Christmases. And the sheer look of terror in the eyes of these two children makes us laugh because while seeing Father Christmas should make us feel warm and should make us feel good. For some, this season is actually a time of horror. Matthew records the events that take place during the first Christmas season, and they are not filled with the elements that we would prefer during this season. Rather, the scene starts at night. Amid the darkness, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, with a message, get up, he says, and take, the, take Mary and the child to Egypt. King Herod, the sitting king of the Jews and that entire region, is on the warpath, and this little baby is the target. He's a threat. He's about to, if he hasn't already, shaken up the politics and the power structures of the day. Now, it's important to say that, and it's pretty obvious. If you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, simply stated, Herod is a bad man. He's a bad man. And his introduction, and at this introduction, you and I know that the scene is about ready to get really messy. Trouble is on the horizon. The first century historian, Josephus, tells us that Herod was not queasy about murdering those who got in his way. No king of that day is going to deal well with his enemies. But not only did he deal harshly with his enemies, murder was the destiny for his loved ones, his family members as well. When he was 70 years old, he grew so sick that he thought that his death was coming soon. So he planned the ceremony of his own funeral. And according to Eugene Peterson, his plan was to ensure widespread lamentation. He ordered the the arrest of Jewish elders from a number of villages across Palestine. They were then jailed in the Jericho racetrack with instructions to have them killed as soon as he died. That way, there would be loud lamentation all over the country at his time of death. 
At one point, he ordered that his wife should be executed. If he was to be killed on one of his traveling expeditions, he didn't want anyone else to have her. And when she upset him, he actually did have her killed. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-laws. He killed anyone who got in his way. He even killed his own sons. So when the Magi declare to Herod that they are seeking out the new king of the Jews, this madman goes to work. Really, it's a pretty easy decision. He had all the power and all the, all the anger in his heart, which made for an extremely explosive situation. Every child, the command was, the decree was, who is two years of age and younger is to be killed. And Herod goes on a killing spree. We almost refuse to let our imaginations go in this direction. To, to, imagine those, to imagine those homes and those mothers and those fathers and the brothers and the sisters in this first Christmas scene. We almost don't have words to describe what actually take place. Darkness and tears and fears and murder and anger and violence and destruction and tragedy and despair and death. These are the elements of the first Christmas scene. And after reading this text together, it's ironic that our secular season of Christmas begins with Black Friday. Because these are the kinds of elements that show up in the first Christmas scene. And these are also the kinds of elements of our Christmas that we attempt to avoid. Well, we would prefer things like pajamas and family and going to the Chesapeake lights and grandparents and grandchildren and cousins and chestnuts and presents and movies and sleepovers and parties and eggnog. The reality is that in this story, Matthew chapter 2, it has none of these elements. And the name of this book, strangely enough, is called The Gospel or Good News according to Matthew. The title of this sermon is called Tears and Fears and Others Christmas Things, and the story is actually rated R. I'm glad it's not a family worship Sunday. It's not appropriate for family worship. It's about murder and tragedy and darkness and exile and despair. The story is about politics and power. This story is about a madman, a psychopath, a king named Herod who holds all of, the, all of the power in the land and is threatened by a poor little baby and his lower class parents. It leaves us after reading it with doubts and questions and it does so because this story is actually our story. We know this story. We've heard this story before. It just doesn't live in, it just doesn't live in our imaginations as we deal with this text in Matthew. You and I have experienced this story. We know it. We've lived it. Just, over a little, uh, just a little over a year ago, our world was shaken. A story that we once, that we had first heard on the news became our story. It entered into our homes and it entered into our lives. A man walked into an elementary school of a small, middle, upper middle class bedroom community in Connecticut and shot the place to pieces. This was not our first encounter with an act of violence like this. In fact, there have been 27 school shootings since that day in Newtown. 
But what was shocking was, was the fact that this was a good school and the families were good. But even more, what was so shocking was the fact that so many people thought, this is the Christmas season. This is the season of perpetual hope. And since, like the story in Matthew, this event has become highly politicized. People angry over this event, as they should be, have argued as to the ways in which it could have been prevented. Arguments have taken place about mental illness and violence and gun control and 911 tapes. People wanted to know what this particular man had against these particular children. And person after person began to ask the question, how can this happen during Christmas? How can this be? What is happening to our world? And the most important question, where is God in this? The events that we find in Newtown are the events that take place in this story. The, place that we, the events that we find in Newtown, Newtown, and every other school shooting since, from urban to suburban, and every single act of evil in our lives is the original Christmas story played out in real time. We're all characters in this tragedy. What Newtown showed us was that the elements of darkness and anger and violence and despair are the elements of Christmas and the elements of our very lives. This was an elementary school full of children who had done nothing wrong. And a man entered in and created a scene that few can describe. Except for Matthew. Matthew can describe the scene. And he does describe it. And the reason that he describes it is in order to answer our questions. Scholars agree that Matthew was a Jewish man. He was a man writing to a Jewish audience who had a story much like ours. And he makes reference to the prophets in order to answer these questions. He, he makes reference to Hosea and Jeremiah and the prophets of old. In the first century, these people, as we said, were under the, ro- under the rule of the Romans and Herod specifically. They were, a hit, uh, they were an oppressed people who had a history of seeking political and religious freedom. And not only was it uncommon for them to experience the heavy hand of Herod and the Romans, a heavy hand of a political leader, it was common for them to experience the hand of and the fullness of evil itself. And in an effort to maintain hope, what they would do was they would tell certain stories day after day and year after year. One story was that of the Exodus. Matthew refers to it by quoting Hosea in verse 15. It was a story about a madman, a psychopath. He was a man of politics and power who held the people down in slavery and darkness. He was Pharaoh, the leader of the superpower of the entire world. He was threatened just like Herod was. He was insecure just like Herod was. The man with all of the power in the world didn't use his power to benefit those under his care, but rather he uses his power to hold them captive. So... In order to hold them captive, like Herod, Herod, he orders all the midwives who are helping the young Hebrew women in labor, he orders them to kill the baby if it's born a boy. Don't bother counting ten fingers and ten toes. Don't bother holding it. No laughter is allowed. Don't call the grandparents. Kill it. And mothers throughout the land 
shrieked with grief. And yet, God hears their cries. And God in this story has compassion on the people. And like in this text, the Matthew text this morning, he creates an escape plan. His escape plan starts with a baby. His name is Moses, and he's hidden in a basket by his mother, and he's floated down the Nile River. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in the palace, and he eats at the table of the Pharaoh, the man who wanted him killed, only then to lead God's people out of that land, across the sea, through the desert, into a new land of promise. In the new land of promise, there are things that we dream about there. The Old Testament says time and time again that it's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And if we've ever arrived at this place, we then could faithfully sing Andy Williams' song. Those who originally read what Matthew wrote would have referenced this ancient Hebrew story immediately. They would have known that this is what he was referring to. They would have seen the parallels and they would have also seen the irony. Because they knew this story, this, this text, Matthew, begged them to ask, to ask this question. Who is going to be the one who is going to rescue us from our current darkness? Who will act like Moses? Who will be our mediator? Who will be our savior? Not only that, but they would have recognized the reference to Jeremiah that Matthew makes in verse 17. This time, their story is one of exile. They, at one point in their history, were ripped from their land of promise and were under Babylonian rule. And their leader's name was Nebuchadnezzar. Again, a new ruler. Again, a new king. Again, a new superpower. And as in the time of the exile, there was a voice heard in Ramah where there was weeping and mourning, for, uh, weeping and mourning from Rachel, who was the matriarch of this people, for the children who had been killed. And she refused comfort because of their death. And just like that, so there was weeping from the mothers in Bethlehem. And again, Matthew, making this reference, begins to beg the question to be asked. Where is the one who is going to rescue us from our current darkness? Who will act on our behalf? Who will be our mediator? Who will be our savior? And Matthew then begins to go to work. He begins to scratch down these events. We know them now as the gospel or the good news, according to Matthew. There were too many parallels to be seen, too many coincidences. They would have seen the politics and the power and the baby and the hand of God in the midst of the story he is telling. They would have understand the escape that Hosea references, the weeping Jeremiah references, and the play on word that Matthew uses, the prophets of old declared, he will be called a Nazarene. This reference, this last one, is a tribute to the prophets collectively. It's a play on words which is messianic in nature. And by being messianic, Matthew is telling his readers that this is the one for whom we have been waiting. They told these stories over and over again to their children. Everyone knew them. They had them memorized. And Matthew makes these references first to Hosea, then to Jeremiah, then to the prophets of old, so that he is leading up to the big finish. They would have seen that he the one in the manger was like Moses and that God was putting together an escape plan. 
They would have understood that the stories that they told day after day, year after year, that this is actually happening in real time with one stark difference. This little baby, the one for whom they have been waiting, the one who lies in the manger, is the one that they have been waiting for, not because he was like Moses, but because he was like God. In fact, he was God. God, Matthew tells us, is the one who is in the manger. The escape plan is God in the manger. Matthew is trying to communicate that God in the person of Jesus is the promise fulfilled for all of history to those who are trapped under the cover of darkness. Unlike Pharaoh, uh, unlike Pharaoh and Herod and Nebuchadnezzar who have all of the power in the world and use it to destroy those who are under their care, even the most innocent ones, Jesus is the Messiah who has all of the power of the universe and uses that power to be God with us. The point of the reference to the Exodus, the point of the reference to Hosea and Jeremiah and the prophets of old is to demonstrate that God does not just send someone. God sends himself. Oddly enough, he is both delivered and the deliverer. John In his his gospel, the gospel according to John said it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Apostle Paul said it this way, The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him. And for him, there was an ancient hymn that was sung by the early church. He, who did not, uh, who, who being very nature uh, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that a name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on, in heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Hebrew writer said it this way, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the time in which you move. Christmas 
is uncontrollable. Yes, the elements, they seem dark, but all of a sudden, newness is before us. A baby is being born. In the scene, Dean Miller says that Jesus is bursting. He is exploding. He is interrupting our world. It is a crazy time. Barren women giving birth, virgins conceiving, angels on a high. It's the beginning of a new kingdom. And you know it's overwhelming because the angels keep having to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid to every single person they meet. It's not dogs by the fire or hot chocolate after a snowy day. Christmas is things unexpected. It's promises fulfilled. It's God with us. It's a new power. It's a new politic. There is a new kingdom. In her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, Pulitzer Prize winner Annie Dillard writes, It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. This is the real image of Jesus. This is what a baby born in Bethlehem does for us. N.T. Wright tells us that Jesus is the promise fulfilled for those who are trapped under the cover of darkness. Jesus was born into a land of darkness in a time of tension and trouble and violence and fear. For God, there is no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world suffers in injustice and violence. If he is to be Emmanuel... God with us. He must be and is where our deepest pain is. In Jesus, despite the frantic and tragic events that happened around his birth, but because of them, God is providing salvation and rescue that Israel longed for. And through that, his justice is offered to the whole world. The young child born to be the true king of the Jews has been introduced as the bearer of God's salvation and indeed of God's personal presence. So what is our response? Well, I already told you what it should have been. It's to be moved. It's to be moved in our hearts. It's to be moved in our minds. It's to be moved in our bodies. We're moved by recognizing that He is the hope for all humanity. We're moved by recognizing that this is the one for whom we have been waiting. We're moved by recognizing that He is the one capable of forgiving sins and healing the entire world. We're moved by recognizing now that we, along with the angels on high, are to worship this one, God in the manger, the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. Luke said it this way. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which should be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Our response is to be moved in hope and in worship. Let me pray for us if I could. God, when we were in darkness... You saw us in our suffering and you met us 
By not just sending someone, you are both the delivered and the deliverer. And so our response is gratitude. Our response is thankfulness. Our response is trust. Our response is confession. Our response is praise. Our response is worship. In the end of the ages, all will sing your glory. And we practice now in these few minutes. It is only the most wonderful time of the year, not because of the things that we construct or because of the things that we hope for, but because of the things that you have done. May our praise and our movement now in these moments with our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our voices match the praise of the heavenly host. We pray these things in the name of the one born in the major, Jesus
during the Christmas season and proclaim that the one who was born and lies in the manger is the Savior and the hope for the entire world. Peace to you today. You are dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.